pray together. God, we thank you for a chance to gather as your people. Lord, we thank you for how much of this moment feels, um, Lord, like a, a sanctuary, a true rest for our souls. God, we thank you that we can come in here with um, everything that we've experienced throughout the week, whether it be high highs or low lows, and we can come here and sit under your word and hear from you. God, thank you that this is truly a solace and a place of rest. God, I pray for those who are here today who are exhausted, Lord, whether physically, emotionally, or even spiritually, Lord, people who will come here and they're just discouraged. God, I pray that you would uh, remind them that they can come here just as they are. But Lord, would you also remind them of the invitation of Jesus to come, all who are weary, that they may find their rest in Christ. So God, I pray that you would show us Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would experience the beauty of Jesus because we know when we experience him, we will never be the same. So God, use this text to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Devotion can be a difficult thing to measure and quantify. For example, spouses in the room, uh, if I asked you, how would you describe your devotion to your spouse? I wonder how you would respond to that. I'm sure most of the spouses in the room could point to a few examples of, of how they're devoted to their spouse, but how do you know that those things are what your spouse qualifies as devotion? For example, and maybe just to state the obvious, husbands putting the seat down after you go to the bathroom should not be number one on your list. Showing your devotion can be difficult to measure and quantify. And it's hard enough to measure one's devotion. It's even harder to discern one's motives for being devoted. Why are you devoted to something or someone? For example, if you have a job and your boss comes to you and asks you the question, hey, in what ways are you devoted to the company? That's a very different question than if your boss asked you, why are you devoted to the company? Your answers to those questions are going to be different because that second question is getting at your motives of why you work so hard. Now, this morning, I want to take this idea of devotion, measuring your devotion, discerning your motives, and I want to apply that to uh, your relationship with God. What does true devotion to God actually look like? How do you measure your commitment before the Lord? And how do you know that your commitment before the Lord actually has pure motives? Francis Chan, in his latest book, uses an illustration where he was talking to his daughter, and he asked her, uh, how many of your classmates would come to your birthday party if all we did was provide cake for them at our house? Okay, we don't provide any entertainment. There are no gifts, no prizes. We just invite them to the house just to be with you? And his daughter answered, well, maybe only a couple of my classmates would come. And then he said, okay, well, what if we rented out this big arcade center, Dave and & Buster's, and we provided unlimited tokens and prizes and games and food? How many of your classmates would come then? And she responded uh, quite confidently and said that the whole school might show up. And he said, okay, you know, just by way of illustration, let's say I rent out this arcade center, and all of these classmates come, and they're having the time of their lives. And then he says, what if I pull my daughter to the side, I put my arm around her, and I say, look at this. Look at all these classmates who are here just 
for you. And he says in, in his book, he says, now with that comment, do you think that my daughter would actually believe that these classmates are here just for her or would she actually be insulted by that comment? The point is that he's trying to argue is that there are some people who claim to be Christians or people who claim to even be devoted to God, and yet they don't really want God. They want the, the benefits that come with what it means to be a Christian. And here's kind of the point of the sermon this morning, is that your motives for being devoted to God has a direct impact on the scope of your devotion. In other words, the, the question for us to consider this morning is, are you truly devoted to God because of, of who Jesus Christ is, because of his beauty, because he is the ultimate treasure? Or are you devoted to God because of the benefits that he brings into your life? Because maybe he, he impacts your social status, maybe he helps your, your image, maybe he provides some emotional experiences, maybe he provides some materialistic possessions, or are you a Christian this morning because you want God? I think it's a really important question. In fact, this issue is so important that John includes it in his gospel. In John chapter 12, he uh, centers this passage on what it means to truly be devoted to God. And I say that this is really important, uh, not because um, other places in John's gospel isn't important, but this is really important because whenever, whenever something happens in John's gospel that shows up, in the other Gospels, that tells us that this is extremely significant. Remember, one of the key characteristics of John's Gospel is that he tends to highlight teachings of Jesus and miracles of Jesus and interactions with Jesus that Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, do not. In fact, there's only a couple of, of events or conversations that actually show up in all four of the Gospels. You have the feeding of the 5,000. You have Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. You have Peter's denial of Jesus, and you have Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so whenever something shows up in John's gospel that also appears in the other gospel writer's work, that tells us that it's extremely important. And John chapter 12, this anointing of Jesus at Bethany, not only shows up here in John's work, but it also shows up in Matthew and Mark's account as well. And I think that this passage is so important. Because you and I need an understanding of devotion that is far deeper than just a to-do list. That you and I, we need an understanding of devotion that's not just more tasks to keep us busy as Christians. But you and I need a picture of devotion that informs how we measure our devotion to God and also shapes our motives for why we are devoted as Christians before God. I think this passage provides a great picture of that. In fact, what we're going to see in John chapter 12 and really this whole chapter is a, a comparison between true devotion before God and false devotion. That here in our passage in verses 1 through 11, we have kind of on the micro level a comparison between Lazarus, Martha, and Mary compared to that of Judas who has a false devotion. And then as we take a step back and look at this whole chapter on the macro level, what John shows us is a comparison between John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, and then he compares that to the next passage of Jesus' triumphal entry and the crowd's false devotion. 
And so as we look at verses 1 through 11 this morning, there are four key characteristics of true devotion before God that I want to highlight for us today. Before we get to the first one, just to set uh, the context of what's going on in our scene, if you look at verse 1 with me, we learn that Jesus is back in Bethany, and it's six days before the Passover feast. Now, he's back in Bethany because he was just here uh, four weeks before where he raised Lazarus from the dead. This is six days from uh, the big Passover feast where everybody's kind of crowding into Jerusalem. And Jesus is one day removed from the Passion Week uh, getting started. This is really the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, we know that Jesus is at a dinner here. But in Mark's account and even in Matthew's account, it kind of fills in the details of what's going on in this scene. We know from Mark's account that this house that they're at belonged to Simon the leper or Simon the ex-leper who Jesus healed. And then in Matthew's account, it reveals for us that the rest of the disciples were there as well. And so at this dinner scene, there are at least 17 people there with the 12 disciples, Jesus, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and Simon. And the purpose of this gathering is most likely a dinner celebration. This is like a, a big thank you for Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and, and perhaps even other miracles that Jesus performed. This is a great time of joy, but also a time to express true devotion to Jesus. So a couple of things I want to point out about true devotion. Here's the first characteristic that we see is that true devotion involves having a proper perspective, having a proper perspective. In verse 2, we are introduced to Martha once again. Now, Martha is doing exactly what she loves to do, and that is serving. Martha's helping to uh, prepare the food, even serve the food. This is Martha's sweet spot. This is what uh, her life is all about. Martha is uh, a type A personality, or if you're into the Enneagram, she's probably a type 3 uh, achiever. She's a worker. She's very uh, goal-oriented. And yet this morning, for us to see her perspective, let's not focus on her actions or her service. Let's focus on, on her attitude that we see in this passage. And in order for us to learn about her attitude, we need to compare an earlier version of Martha, something that happened in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Now, this is another scene where Martha and Mary are interacting with Jesus it's happened months before John chapter 12. Now notice, again, the perspective of Martha in this passage. We learn that now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve all alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Now again, this is an earlier uh, version of Martha. And notice in this passage that she's serving again. But this time, Jesus is lovingly calling her out for being anxious, for being troubled by many things. Even verse 40 uh, describes Martha as being distracted with much serving. And so what we learn in Luke chapter 10 is that Martha's devotion to Jesus was tainted by an unhealthy perspective 
where she was serving in order to earn points on the morality scorecard. That the perspective that Martha had in Luke chapter 10 is that she was disconnecting her service from her worship. And then you get to John chapter 12, and it's a different gathering with Jesus, and yet Martha is still serving. But what do you notice in this passage? There's no rebuke by Jesus. There's, there's no hint of Martha trying to earn points on the morality scorecard. There's, there's no hint of, of Martha having an unhealthy perspective of separating her service from her worship. What we see Martha doing here is she's serving Jesus and she's serving him with a proper perspective. And my question for us to wrestle with this morning is what has changed between the Martha of Luke 10 and the Martha of John chapter 12? I think what has changed in Martha is her perspective, that Martha has a new attitude as it relates to serving, as it relates to being devoted to Jesus Christ. And I think what generated this new perspective is John chapter 11, that just a few weeks before John chapter 12, Martha literally saw Jesus raise her brother from the dead. This event freed Martha from this chronic obsession with trying to earn Jesus's approval by her own service and by her own devotion. And for Martha, she experienced firsthand this man who, who death has no power over. And Martha experienced firsthand this man whose authority has no rival. That in John 11, as we saw, Martha experienced the glory of God demonstrated in the resurrection power of Jesus, and it messed her up in a good way. That John 11 shifted her perspective from serving in order to earn Jesus' approval to now serving in a way that glorifies God and gives thanks for who he is. And look, this is exactly what the gospel does in our own lives. That the gospel is something that not only saves us, but the gospel actually shapes our motives for why we are devoted to Christ. That it gives us a whole new perspective. See, when you understand the gospel and you allow it to impact not only your justification, but how it is that you serve the Lord Jesus, what that does is that releases this burden of trying to earn God's approval by your good works and by your own devotion. What the gospel actually does is it lifts this burden, this burden that Martha had in Luke 10 of being troubled by many things, being anxious about your performance before God. It lifts that burden because you remember exactly what Jesus Christ declared on the cross of Calvary as he was dying in the place of sinners, he yelled and declared, it is finished. Now, what does he mean by that? It is finished meant that I've not only paid the penalty for sin, but what Jesus meant by it is finished is that I have forever met God's perfect standard of approval with my own perfect righteousness. That Jesus is declaring, it is finished, meaning there's no more need to perform for God in order to attain his love and his acceptance because he has already accomplished it. And look, if you're here this morning and your faith is upon Jesus Christ, I want you to hear this this morning. Your sins are not only forgiven, 
but Jesus' perfect righteousness has now been transferred into your accounts. And what that means is that that burden, that Luke 10 burden of trying to earn God's approval is lifted and it's thrown out the window. So now you serve and you are devoted to God out of a thankfulness and out of complete freedom because Jesus has already accomplished what you desperately need. Now, I, I share that with you today because I, I wonder in, in our, con- our congregation where there are a lot of type A personalities there's a lot of, of goal-oriented people. I know many of you, you're driven. You love to accomplish things. And, and I just wonder this morning if you can relate more with the Martha of Luke 10 compared to the Martha of John chapter 12. I wonder even as you're hearing the sermon this morning, you're hearing the sermon about being devoted to Christ. I wonder if, if there's this voice that's circling your heart saying, you need to do more. You need to accomplish more. You need to be more committed to Christ. And I wonder if there's a little bit of discouragement or even exhaustion that's starting to settle into your heart today. And, and I wonder if it's, if it's not because it's not that you don't know Jesus. It's not that you don't believe in the gospel, but it's because our hearts tend to leak the gospel throughout the day. Look, I know this to be true because, look, I, I'm Martha of Luke 10. Like, there's nobody in the Bible that I relate more with than Martha of Luke 10. My Enneagram is type 3, just so you know. Like, she, like I get her. I, I understand exactly what she's trying to do there. And, and on Sunday mornings, look, if you can relate to me, on Sunday mornings we get filled up with the gospel. We hear about all that Jesus has accomplished throughout the week. We spend time with the Lord. Our hearts get filled up. But what happens when we go throughout the day is you experience temptation, you experience trial, you experience issues that you need to solve. And what tends to happen is our hearts leak the power of the gospel and we lose sight of how to connect the gospel to our devotion to Jesus Christ. That you fall into duty instead of delight before Jesus. You fall into this mindset of I have to instead of I get to because of what Jesus has accomplished. And look, it's because we fail to rehearse the power of the gospel all throughout the day. Look, notice how this perspective has impacted Martha. Now, look, she can serve a dinner and it's worship. What does that mean for us today? That means that you can pay the bills, you can care for your kids, you can go to work each and every day, you can change diapers, and that can be Worship, when you have this type of perspective that you do what's right, you pursue devotion before God, not to earn his love, but because you forever have it in Jesus, and now you live in that type of freedom. Our devotion to him grows when our perspective is gospel-shaped. We have to move on. I'm going over my time today, but let's move on to number two. The second characteristic of devotion that we see uh, is sacrificial True devotion is sacrificial. Notice, as this dinner gets underway, we are immediately introduced to this characteristic. Now, just picture this dinner scene for a moment. Like, this dinner must have been unbelievable uh, to attend. Not only do you have probably good food, but you've got good friends. Imagine the conversation that took place. Remember, you got the 12 disciples, Mary, Martha, but you got Lazarus, and you've got Simon the leper who was healed by Jesus. 
Now, I can imagine this scene here. Again, Simon's hosting. He's probably going into the story of, hey, guys, do you remember when I was, when I, when I was a leper? I had leprosy, and my fingers and my, and my toes were falling off, and I had scabs everywhere. Do you remember when Jesus healed me, and, and my fingers grew back, my, my toes grew back, and I was healed of leprosy? And I can imagine like Lazarus, like interrupting him and be like, all right, we've heard this story a million times. Yes, that's amazing. But guys, I was literally dead for four days. Like that was just a couple of weeks ago. Like, do you remember how bad my body stank that day? Like I was dead and Jesus raised me back to life. Like you can imagine like the dialogue that's happening. And again, just glorifying Jesus and what he's done. And yet verse three tells us, and we get this idea, this picture that Mary must have left the room for a moment. She had to go grab something. She comes back and she's got this ointment. She's got this perfume, this, this oil that, you know, it's about a, a Roman pound. It's about 11 ounces. And she takes it and she anoints the feet of Jesus. And we have to understand that this, this ointment that she had was incredibly costly. Now, this was most likely passed down from her mother. This was a, a large amount of, of ointment that she put on Jesus. And look, I just want to compare for a moment the sacrificial devotion of Mary compa- compared to the backstabbing betrayal of Judas. Now look, Mary's ointment here that she just anointed Jesus' feet was worth almost a year's salary that she puts on Jesus' feet. Now you compare that to Judas Iscariot, who, mind you, is expressing a false devotion because all he cares about is his social status with Jesus, what he can get from Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus, which we'll find out in a couple of, uh, a couple of weeks, betrays Jesus for only 30 pieces of silver. That was worth maybe $3,000. Mary here is anointing Jesus with, with a type of ointment that was worth well over $30,000. Look, here's the point for us this morning. Here's the takeaway. What you sacrifice for reveals what you are devoted to. What you sacrifice for reveals what you are truly devoted to. And we see this principle all throughout Scripture, don't we? i just give you an example. Uh, King David in 2 Samuel chapter 24 He's looking for a field in order to put up an altar and worship God. He's looking for this field, and he finds out that this field that he wants belongs to this guy named Arana. Arana was a Jebusite. And so this guy, Arana, finds out that the king wants his field. And so he's like, I'm just going to give you this field for free because you're the king. And yet David responds in 2 Samuel verse 24, says, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Look, you see that principle there, that true devotion before God will always cost you something. That true devotion is marked by sacrifice. A couple weeks ago, I was uh, driving home from work and I was pulling into my neighborhood and it was uh, kind of a, a storm was, uh, was settling in, and I was driving through my neighborhood. I was about a street over from where my house was, and I look up at this house, and I could barely believe what I saw. I, I was seeing this house that had caught on fire because lightning struck. 
and, and I, I'm watching this, and, and you know, fire's on the roof and on the upper bedroom, and adrenaline just started kicking in. I'm like, okay, what's the best thing to do here? Do I go in? Do I, do I call 911? Um, see Deanne saying, don't go in. Yeah, she's an attorney. So yeah. Um, so I'm like thinking, okay, I, I need to call 911. So I call 911. They're sending, you know, firefighters on the way, and, and you know, they're asking me a million questions, and, and so they're sending people, and I'm thinking, okay, do I need to go in here? Like, is there someone in the house? And the operator's like, don't go in, it's not safe. And as I'm talking to the operator about this, the owner of the house pulls in behind me and races out of the car, rolled down my window. I was like, hey, I called the fire. And he's sprinting into the house. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, he's going into the house that's on fire. Like, I'm thinking, what, what is in there that he's willing to sacrifice his life for to save? I'm thinking, is his wife in there? Is his kids in there? Like, is a prized possession in there? He comes out of the house, and in his hands is his little dog. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking, okay, like, I'm glad it wasn't a cat, right? You know, I'm not a cat person. <laughs> comes out, and I'm like, dude, you can't go back in there. Like, if you have a cat, like, just leave it, you know? <laughs> I didn't say that, but he comes out, he's all, he's all shaken up. And, you know, we're there, and, and the firefighters just come, and they, and they do what they needed to do. But I was so struck by that because that my neighbor, like, man, he loves his dog. Like, he is devoted to his dog. He's willing to risk his life, to sacrifice his life for this dog. And the principle is true even there. What you are willing to sacrifice reveals what you are truly devoted to. And I think the challenge for you and I this morning is can you truly claim to be devoted to Jesus Christ if it costs you nothing. Now look, you can, you can claim all you want to be a Christian. You can claim to be all in for Jesus. But if, but if you're not sacrificing anything, then that's not true commitment. That devotion, devoid of sacrifice, is not committed devotion. It's convenient devotion. That true devotion before God will impact your time, it'll impact your energy, it'll impact your resources, sometimes even your reputation. And so this morning, if you're trying to think through how to inspect your own uh, devotion before God, just to encourage you to, to look at three areas of your life, look at your time, your treasure, and your talent before God. Look at your schedule, look at your gifts, and look at your money and your resources and ask yourself this, this question. Are those three areas of your life marked by convenience or are they marked by sacrifice before God? In other words, when you give your time before God or when you serve or when you give your money before the Lord or you use your gifts, are you only doing those things when it's convenient for you or are you doing it in such a way where it actually costs you something or you kind of you kind of feel it, like, oh, that hurts when I give my time because I wanted to do A, B, and C. See, true devotion before God will always be sacrificial. It will always cost you something. We need to move on again. Number three, the third characteristic that we see in this passage of true devotion is that it's marked by having a pervasive passion, a pervasive passion we see in verse 3 the scene before us at this dinner. I love verse 3 because it, it paints a really good picture of what's taking place. Let me remind you that this is a, a large group of people, and 
uh, they're enjoying a dinner. But remember, this isn't a 21st century Western dinner. This is a, a first century Middle Eastern dinner, which meant that the table was low to the ground, which meant those that were reclining, their feet were farthest from the table. This uh, experience was, was long, okay? So our, our experiences, our, our dinners are usually quick. We're in and out and we're on with our day. This was a long kind of experience enjoying each other's company. And yet in the middle of this dinner, Mary decides to anoint Jesus's feet with ointment and the fragrance of her act fills the entire house. Now, let me unpack that a little bit. Like this, this was a cultural no-no for Mary to do. This was culturally unacceptable and borderline even shameful that to anoint uh, someone's feet, that was reserved for not just the servants, but the lowest of servants. This was reserved not even just for a Jewish servant, but a Gentile servant. And yet Mary still did it. Even Mary, uh, she let down her hair, which was culturally shameful during this time period, and yet she needed to do that in order to clean the feet of Jesus. Now, why would Mary do this? Why would she push through something that was culturally unacceptable and shameful? I think it's because she had a passion for Jesus. She was so consumed with who Jesus actually was that it led her to unhindered worship. For, G, for Mary, Jesus was someone that was much more than just a good rabbi. He was someone that was much more to Mary than just a good moral person. For Mary, Jesus was her ultimate treasure. For Mary, Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus was the Messiah, and specifically in this passage, for Mary, Jesus was the great Passover Lamb of God who was going to die to take away the sin of the world. Now, how do I know that? I know that because according to verse 1, it tells us that they are six days out from the annual Passover feast. Now, why is that significant? That's significant because during this feast, the Israelites would gather in Jerusalem and they would celebrate the great rescue that God performed for their great, 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 great grand, uh, grandfathers and how they, God led them out of Pharaoh and the Egyptian oppression through the 10 plagues. And if you remember the 10th plague, the, the angel of God was, was moving through and was going to kill all the firstborn unless you had a spotless lamb that was slaughtered and the blood was smeared on the doorpost. And that led to the, the freeing of God's people and the Red Sea and all that. So during the Passover feast, the people of God would gather and they would remember that. They would remember God's, uh, God's faithfulness and God freeing them. And what they would do at the Passover feast is they would take lambs, each family that was spotless without wrinkle, and they would slaughter it to remember what God did all those years before. Now, the reason why I share that with you is because six days before the feast, the families would then select the lamb. They would select the lamb six days before because they had to inspect the lamb to make sure it was without spot or wrinkles, without blemish. And what they would do each and every day, they would inspect every inch of that animal. And they would specifically highlight the feet and the legs because those were the areas that, would, that were more, most susceptible to getting cuts and bruises. And once they had that lamb that was selected without blemish, they would then anoint the feet and the legs with oil and with ointment in preparation for their slaughter. And so now we have Jesus Christ, 
who is six days before the Passover feast. He's six days away from himself being slaughtered on the cross. And here we have in this scene, his feet and his legs are being anointed with ointments and oil. Even verse 8, Jesus even says this was done in preparation for his burial. What's the point here? The point is, and Mary recognizes it, is that Jesus is declaring that he is the great Passover lamb of God who has come to die for the sins of the world. Look, I think Mary is starting to connect the dots in this scene. That's why she's anointing the oil, because she remembers John the Baptist back in chapter 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist declared, Behold, the Lamb of God has come to take away the sin of the world. As she's remembering, sitting at the feet of Jesus, all of the teachings, she's remembering all of the miracles, all of the I am statements, and she's connecting the dots in this moment, and her heart is being filled with passion and love for Jesus, and she just can't help herself. She has to spill out this oil and this anointment before Jesus and worship and show her devotion before him. Now, verse 3 is extremely helpful, and I don't think verse 3 at the end, the last sentence there is there by mistake. It says that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Look, what a, what a beautiful picture of pervasive passion that Mary's devotion demonstrated for us, that Mary's use of the perfume wasn't secluded to just one area of the house but it extended to every room of that house. In fact, every room had this fragrance of devotion and worship and adoration. And it'll extend past this house. In fact, in Matthew's accounts of this same scene, Jesus declares in verse 13, he says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her that her devotion has spread and continues to spread throughout the whole world, that she had this pervasive passion. You can imagine what this must have been like. Tons of perfume and ointment is filling this house a lot. You know, this is worse than being around junior hires for a couple of minutes. And you can imagine at this dinner party, as they're walking home or, or they're interacting with people, people are, are, are smelling something. You know, this ointment is something you couldn't get off for the next couple of days. And you wonder if people are like, where'd you get that perfume? Who were you with? Well, why, why do you smell like that? You know, as they're, as they're going home and, and you know, their, their spouse or their kids are like, where did that perfume come from? And, and you wonder if they start explaining what this woman Mary did. And they're like, why, why would Mary, why would this woman spend almost a year's salary and, and just using this ointment on Jesus? What is it about Jesus? And you wonder if because of Mary's pervasive passion, if that created opportunities to talk about the greatness of Jesus. Look, my question for you today is, is your devotion to Jesus so pervasive and so passionate that people do the same thing in your own life? Do people ask you questions about why you're devoted to Jesus, about what is it about Jesus, or is your devotion to Jesus only reserved for Sunday mornings, only reserved for your time in the Word, or does the fragrance of your devotion spill over into your marriage, into your parenting, into your relationships, into who you are at work and in the neighborhood? 
Like just to give you an example of this, let me add to that earlier story of our neighbors whose house was on fire. Firefighters came and they tried to salvage that house and they lost just about everything. And so people in the neighborhood were coming up to them and trying to love on them, but there was a particular family that extended love to them in, in maybe the, the strongest way. They're loving on them. They, they hand them a bag filled with uh, clothes and toiletries and gift cards, and they're praying for them. I later find out that it's a family who are members of our church. And I heard about that, created an opportunity to talk about the gospel with them. And I was so proud of this family who had a devotion to Jesus Christ that extended beyond Sunday morning, extended beyond their own devotion time with the Lord, but their, their fragrance of their devotion overcame the smell of that smoldering fire that burned that house down. And I was so encouraged by that because, look, that is our call as believers. That as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 15, we are the fragrance of Christ. And as we are devoted to Jesus Christ, not just on Sunday mornings, but all throughout the day in every arena of our lives, even in the time of crisis, that our fragrance and our devotion should carry a particular smell that overcomes the sin and the trials of this world. That true devotion will have a pervasive passion in every area of our lives. Well, the last one here, the fourth, and I'll be quick with this one, the last characteristic we see of true devotion is that it has the ability to endure criticism, to endure criticism. We see this with Mary. We see this with Lazarus even. Judas pushes back on Mary's devotion, says that this money could have been used for the poor. He says that because he was stealing. And so Jesus defends her in verse 7 and 8. And yet in verses 9 through 11, we see even Lazarus endures criticism. And there are religious leaders who want to kill Lazarus because he's devoted to Jesus and because people are coming to faith in Jesus because of Jesus' resurrection power. And the point is for us is that as followers of Jesus, as you're devoted to him, you may or may not endure criticism. And look, this is not something that we are to pursue or initiate but the point is, when you experience criticism for being a follower of Jesus, we are to endure it faithfully, and we are to endure it with grace. I think in our day and age, just to encourage you, even to warn you, do not be surprised that you will endure more and more criticism for being a follower of Jesus and holding true to the word of God. But we do so with grace and with love and faithfulness to the word of God and who Jesus actually is. Look, the need for parents and grandparents and mentors to model this for the next generation is more urgent than ever before, that we need to model what true devotion looks like before our kids as they grow up in an age that's becoming more hostile to who uh, Jesus is and to what Christianity is all about. They need us to model true devotion that has a proper perspective that is sacrificial, that has a pervasive passion and endures criticism for the glory of God. Look, as I close this morning, I want to leave you with some encouragement. You know, if your life feels dry and empty today, if you're looking at this passage, hearing this sermon, and you're thinking, I do not relate to Mary at all. 
my, my soul is maybe running on empty, you would describe it. And you're wondering, how can I show true devotion when I don't feel this passion that I'm supposed to have? Let me encourage you to do exactly what Mary did, that she got on her knees before Jesus and she offered her whole life before him, that she poured out her heart before Christ. And, and this is why I encourage you to do that, because your public devotion to Christ will only go as far as your private worship. That your public devotion will only go as far as your private worship before him. To encourage you to do it, to worship him every day, not because you feel like it, but because he's worthy. And look, that's not being fake. That's actually being faithful. That you're training your your desires and and your passion and your worship to, to funnel those affections to Jesus. And the more that you do that, the more that your passion will come. Because look, our devotion to Jesus doesn't rest on an emotion. It rests on the person and the work of Jesus. The more you get on your knees, the more he will meet you there. And the greater your devotion will grow. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your faithfulness to us. God, thank you for the call that we see in John chapter 12 to go all in for you in every area of our lives. And God, that will only take place when we see you as the greatest treasure in this world. So God, I pray as we battle temptation, there are all kinds of things that that want to compete with you. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom Give us eyes to choose Jesus every time. Lord, that the the greatest no to temptation is the great yes to Jesus. So Lord, do that work in our lives, we pray in his name.